This is Deep Blue, where we get the true life stories of BYU athletes, coaches, and fans. Here's your host, Jerem Jordan. On today's show, I talk with a guy who knew he wanted to be a broadcaster from when he was a kid. In fact, he was the first student who was hired by Good Morning America, for goodness sake, whose dad started the Cougar Club, and a guy who has called hundreds, if not thousands, of BYU games. I call him a coworker. I call him a friend. He is Dave McCann. What's up, Dave? Hey, it's great to be with you. You got a nice lair here. This is where it all happens. This is where I go hide when I don't want to be with Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> so you're here a lot. I'm here a ton. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. So let's start with this. You're one of 10 kids. Yeah. 10 in the McCann clan. And you guys still hang out a lot, right? Every Sunday night. Every Sunday night. Family still like your family. That's cool. We love each other. <laughs> uh, and I was gone for 20 years in Vegas, but the family dinners went on without us. But uh, yeah, I'm in charge. My wife and I are in charge of drinks and ice, and everyone's every got week? an assignment. Yeah, the same thing every week. Because I was single when I came back from Vegas, and they, my sisters were like, "Well, there's nothing he could cook that we'll eat." <laughs> so they said, "We'll put you in charge of drinks and ice." I'm like, "Done. That I can do." And uh, so I did that for like seven years, and then I um, teamed up with Diane, and so she's not a soda drinker, but she brings the drinks and the ice, which. She's taking one for the team there. but but So we're all assigned a thing to bring. And uh, really, when you're at home cooking for your family, you've got six things to do. But for the McCann night, you just have the one thing, and then everyone else is doing that. And when you have so many in your family, uh, we could – well, we do. We, we, feed, uh, we feed a giant group every Sunday night and allows us to know who's playing what, who's got a church thing coming up. Um, it's the only, it's the only way we've known to do it. With with all but one of us lives around here. The other, my sister's in Colorado, but then we have like forty seven grandkids and sixteen maybe great grandkids. And so, when you start that group, and if you're going to have a family of ten, you got to work at keeping tabs on everybody. And it won't. It's not an uncommon sight for one of our nephews to be playing a baseball game over at the city center uh, in Little League and have thirty five of us show up to watch. <laughs> and uh, we just think that's cool. And people looking at well, all those people are cheering for one kid. That doesn't seem right, but that's just how we've done it. And other families do it differently, but for us, Sunday night's kind of a sacred time where the weather's good. We'll eat and we'll go out in my sister's backyard and play wiffle ball, the marrieds against the heads, as we call them. And then we get married, they cross over to our team. Mm. Uh, and they're the first sent back down if uh, the other team needs some guys. <laughs> relegation. Uh, and girls, for that matter. And then um, wintertime, they come up to our house because we can get everybody indoors. And it's chaotic, and it's loud, and, and uh, it's the best part of the week. My mom's one of ten. I'd bite my arm off to have them all hang out every week. I think that would be so fun. We have a Marco Polo group. So everyone's weighing yeah. in, talking all, and they're scattered. You know, if they were all here, that'd be so cool. It's awesome, and and my brothers were all athletic studs in high school, quarterbacks and point guards at Orem High. All ten of us went to Orem High, and so I let them listen. I'll listen to their stories and let them talk this and that, and then I'll wait for a quiet moment. Then I'll ask, hey, who of us gets paid to walk into an arena <laughs> or football stadium? Uh, who never caught a pass in high school or scored a basket or any of that stuff? And that's when they just go. Yeah, right. You'd give it all up for one touchdown pass. And you know what? They might be right. You know, we just, you know, we love to do that as kids. But we have a great uh, unit, and we lost our dad 24 years ago. We just, the ship just keeps moving along. We stay tight, and 
they love my job with BYU because it's just kept us connected from our dad's job. And um, so there's never really been a separation of BYU and the McCann since 1975 when, when he was hired and put in charge of the Cougar Club. And so, uh, yeah, I, so I, I kind of take them with me wherever I go, even though I'm not getting them all tickets. You know, you can't, I can't request 60 tickets for yeah, every game. Yeah, wait a minute. I'm like, guys, don't talk to me about tickets. <laughs> but we're on uh, BYU TV at noon, and uh, they're like, fine, whatever. That's an easier way and definitely free. Yeah. Okay, so you wanted to be a broadcaster at what age? Well, when I was four, my mother tells me that's what I told her I wanted to do. Wow. And I just never varied from it. You know, I was short. I was always short. I'm still waiting, actually, for my growth spurt. Um, my brothers were taller. Uh, so athletics, participation, we all played and all that stuff. But it was easier for them. They were bigger and they were better. And, and I just kind of found a way to participate. And um, when I was 14, I got a job writing for the Herald. My brother was on the Orem football team, and I was getting paid nine dollars and fifty cents to go to the game and write an article. Nine fifty at fourteen. I didn't make nine fifty until like sophomore well, year, junior of college. That's big time. But <laughs> hey, that's not an hour. That's nine fifty for the oh, whole period. Thing. Yeah, the game, <laughs> the game, the write up. The my dad. Never had, mind. My dad would drive me to the games because they're too far to ride on my bike, and, uh, and then he'd drive me down to the Herald, the Daily Herald here in Provo, and I'd go in and write my. A few things. Dick Harmon was was there. Marion Dunn was there. This is a long time ago. Are you typewriter at this point? Uh, or is I think there they computer had a computer. Still? They had is a computer. Like one in the corner? Yeah, yeah, something <laughs> like that. And then I was also a Daily Herald paperboy at the time. So I you were would, delivering your own I articles? I would deliver a paper with my article in it, and I'd tell them, hey, there's a great story in C7. And I didn't get any more tips from from the people I delivered uh, you think I would now that I think about it, because I was delivering the paper and I was writing in the paper, but um, I think it was four dollars a month at the time to be to get the daily paper. But but that started it all for me in the creative process of finding a way to participate in sports um, when you weren't going to be the starting guard or the quarterback. Um, and then I got into radio because we had a high school radio station. Orem famously has one. K-O-H-S. I was always jealous in high school that Orem had a station. Oh, yeah. 1,000 watt FM. Uh, would play the music that the girls we wanted to date wanted to hear. <laughs> and, Did uh, it work? Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and then we were broadcasting games. We, our advisor, Steve Garrett, who's passed away a long time ago, who was so influential on me, uh, he would call the varsity games, but he would let me call the JV games. And I'd called a million of those games in my downstairs basement on my Nerf rim. So it was natural for me to put a headset on and do it. And my voice was so high that uh, he nicknamed me Munchkin, which I never appreciated. <laughs> and, uh, and then we just was a DJ and did play-by-play. And, and that's where, um, that's where I, I learned that you can do it. Everyone can do it differently, but um, some people can – can process all that information that's going on at the same time and and speak through it all, and some can't. You know, some quarterbacks can handle a blitz, and some are destined to get sacked. But you just find out when you're in it. And uh, uh, Mr. Garrett kicked me out of radio four times 
for being a, a smart aleck, know-it-all, <laughs> punk. Uh, but he always let me back in after I apologized. And Four times one year? Maybe one year. It might have been might have over two years. But, uh, you know, <laughs> it was his way or the highway. And often there were other roads that I wanted to travel in that radio thing. But but he always let me back in. I think he sensed that I had some talent. And, and I know when I was hired at Good Morning America, I think that's when he realized that he had done the right thing. Uh, in in bringing me along with the paper and the and the radio and then and then after my mission um, on my mission I thought you know what well, here's here's how young people think so on my mission I'm going well the thing with radio is you can just get replaced by somebody and if they play the same songs everyone's just going to keep listening as a DJ. so there's no tenure as a DJ but we're so disposable and uh, and writing was fun but. Um, I was thinking, what could I make a living at? And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go into television because at least that way, the more you're on, the harder you are to replace because there is uh, the audience growing with you. And um, I always thought when I was a sportscaster in Vegas that, yeah, my station could go hire Bob Costas to do the evening sports and he'd probably be better than me. But Bob Costas hasn't been in the home of every Las Vegan who's watched Channel 8 for the last 15 years. That's what I have on Bob Costas. And so sometimes when you go into a media market and you see a news anchor, you're going, how do they have their job? They can't even read three sentences without messing up or this or that. <laughs> it's because they've grown up in the community. They're part of the community. Yeah. And when you get to that point, you, they, everyone's forgiving. Ah, oh, that's just Steve. Or, oh, that's just Dave. Yeah, he, he can't say those words right. But we love him. He's but we guy. love him. He's, yeah. We've known him forever. And um, and, and, and so that, that that's what I thought. I thought – I can get some tenure in television, and I'm um, now in my 31st year, I think, of, wow. of that. Um, I, I had a an eye-opening experience uh, just before I left Vegas. A kid came up to me, and he saw me not in a suit and uh, didn't recognize Which me. Which is a startling thing. And uh, and he goes, oh, you Dave McCann? I go, yeah. He goes, he goes I have, I've watched you my entire life. And I've never seen you not in a suit. And like a BYU thought, fan who was in Vegas? Or just a Vegas. Just oh, a just Vegas, Vegas guy. Channel 8 viewer yeah. type guy. Gotcha. Uh, and I thought about it. I thought, really, you've only seen me your entire life in a suit, tie, and jacket. And that's the relationship you can create um, as a news or sports anchor or a person on TV because they bond with you and you don't know them uh, if you do it right. And then when they see uh, um and I just sat there and I thought, well, that's the saddest thing I've ever heard because I'm only in a suit at work. So you've only <laughs> seen me at work for 20 years. And here we are living in the same city doing all kinds of things. But, um, yeah, that was like, wow, that's right. Some people have only seen you on BYU Sports Nation. So when you go to uh, a fan outing in Vegas, it's a big deal to them because all of a sudden you're like a real person and part of their family. So when you yeah. disappear, all of a sudden they've lost a family member, and they're like, you know, what, what, what happened to you? You uh, well, I I went on vacation for a week. I wish that you happened. Know, my often. wife made me go. I go on vacation <laughs> and no one says anything. I'm like, wait. My mom's different though. She'll say, why aren't you on today? I'm like, because I took the day off, mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't always have to be there, even though sometimes we right. think we do. Right. But uh, so yeah. So on my mission, I and I knew BYU had a great program, and and came home, got right involved in it, and. Um, and things have been fantastic. It's been a, 
it's been a lot of work. It's it's been interesting. Um, as I look back, I did some hard things that uh, were inconvenient at the time, but were game changers. You know, when you're a junior, you got to go on an internship in our program, and a lot of people went up to KSL. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of our interns for the last nine years up there, but at KSL, you don't get to do a whole lot because. We're paid professionals to do that. I did KSL you know? Radio, and I was a little bugged by the lack of important yeah. tasks given, which I get now. But I was like, "Hey, I want to do something that matters." <laughs> well, and I'm and, and I'm sitting across the way, and here's an intern that wants to do something, and I'm thinking, "Why am I going to have you write that when I have to say it?" Mm-hmm. And and this is my career. Not I'm not in here for class credit, and. So I had to train myself to go, now, no, you do this. You do this part. Why don't you try that part? But for the most part, it was like, hey, we're playing for the Yankees here, and my job's to pitch, so I'm going to th- throw the ball. Um, but for for BYU, I thought, you know what, I want to go somewhere that um, would put me to work and that would offer me a job when I was done. And so we had a news director in Terre Haute, Indiana, and I thought, Terre Haute, Indiana, that sounds like a place that needs some free labor. And uh, I called him up, uh, Kurt Sweeney, and uh, explained what I wanted to do. And he goes, man, we could we could use you. We'd love to have you for um, April and May. and um, Or May and June, one of those two. And uh, he goes, and, and you know what? I'm going to talk to my Ellerskorn president. I think they have a place in their basement where you could stay. Oh, as a member of the church? Yeah. Yeah. So I lived in the basement of the Elders Quorum president, some old house that they said Al Capone used to live in, and I believe it. It was kind of creepy. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Out there in the sticks, but but that's where I stayed, and they let me use their car, and it was just like, you know, um, we were expecting our first kid, and and, uh, it just just seemed like, okay, I'm going to do this, and when I get done, I want them to offer me a job, even though I still had a year left, and... um, and go from there. And so I did. And, and uh, about one day, it was a holiday. Um, the anchors were sick. And I anchored the sports that day. The only intern in the history of WTHI to actually anchor the 6 and 10. And I remember the Knicks and Bulls were playing. So whatever time that was. It was a big game in the 90s. The big game. And, uh, and they paid me um, 50 bucks. And upgrade uh, from nine fifty bucks, fifty bucks to do that because they, you know, they. I guess you have to. You put them on the air. You got to pay them something. And uh, and I called home and I said, uh, Hey, I got I got fifty bucks. They paid for this. And and my wife said, That's good because I just we and you know we were students, poor and all that stuff. And she goes, Well, we just got this bill for forty five dollars, so we have five dollars for tithing and forty five bucks for that. <laughs> That's how all these things worked out. And at the end of my internship, uh, they offered me a job. And I turned it down because I wanted to be a BYU graduate. I wanted to come back and I wanted to have, he's a BYU guy, get there before I got there in every aspect of my life. Because a lot of good people have gone to BYU and it's a, it's a stereotype that I love. And if that gets there before you, by the time you get there, they pretty much determine you're a pretty good guy. Now, there are exceptions and all that stuff. And none of us are perfect. But I, that was important to me. And... Um, so I said, I'm, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay here and go to BYU. I was going to work the football games on the sideline and that kind of stuff too. And, and, they, and then he called back and he goes, well, here's what we found out. We can have you actually finish at Indiana State and still graduate from BYU because Indiana State's there in Terre Haute. 
So then I'm thinking, and they were going to offer me what uh, Mr. Norm Tarbach said you would never make coming out of college in the broadcast department. They always lowball that to make you, if you really want to be here because you can't make anything. Some of that's right, but some of it's not. And so we're going through the summer, and then uh, Good Morning America reaches out to the uh, 20, 30 leading communications departments in the country and says, we're looking for a student to be on-air reporting on college issues, and we want you to send in clips of your three best students. And uh, for whatever reason, I was one of the three coming out of BYU, and all of my material I sent was from my internship that got on the air in Terre Haute, Indiana. Mm, so it was pretty good. And then a few weeks later, uh, a lady from New York called and asked me if I'd fly back. And um, I said, sure. I'd never been to New York. I didn't even have a credit card. That was a whole other experience. Um, but I go to this interview with Phil Buth, who's the senior vice president of Capital Cities, which at the time owned Disneyland, ABC, ESPN, the free world. This was, this was the guy. And he's talking to you. And I'm, and I'm going down this long hallway to his office. It was like in the movies. Uh, and if I passed this interview, I was going to get this job. And at the time, I really didn't understand what this job was. I just knew that it was pretty big, and I was in New York, and that was ABC. And so, uh, so I go in there, and I sit down, and he looks at me, and really nice guy. And, and, he, and the first question he asks is, uh, where did you do your service? I go, my service? Yeah, your, your church service. Where did you do that? I go, oh, I did my – in San Antonio, Texas. Two years? I go, yeah, two years. He goes, I got guys riding up and down my street all the time on their bicycles, and uh, uh, they're always out doing good. I, and I said, well, you should, you should feed them. He goes, we feed them all the time. They stop for lemonade, and my <laughs> wife takes care of this and that. And I go, well, maybe someday you should listen to them. And, uh, but, but our whole conversation was about how he's, he was impressed that, uh, that young kids give up two years of their life or 18 months and go on missions. And that, to him, meant more to him than – anything that I had done at this point in my college career. I mean, hmm. um, I, I wasn't there because uh, I couldn't do it. I was, but, but none of that was important. And, and this is what he wanted to talk about. And, and I remember sitting there thinking to myself how fortunate I was because a lot of my friends didn't choose to go on missions, and you don't have to go on a mission. But I was, I was so fortunate to be able to say, well, yeah, I did. I went to Texas instead of well, most of us do, but I did not, uh, because it meant so much to him, and uh, I always—that's always been such a great blessing in my life to to have served uh, as best I could in in two years in Texas. And and so he offered me the job on the spot. He said, "You know, uh, we've never hired a student, so um, we're not really sure how this is going to go. We'll pay you about nine hundred dollars a story," uh, and I'm just like going. Okay, I got three jobs back on campus. I don't even make that in a month. <laughs> and uh, we'll pay for your union dues, and we'll have network crews meet you and have you back to New York for your stories, and and um, we'll take care of you with travel and all this stuff. And um, he goes, you know what? We have a code of conduct thing. I'm just going to skip that because <laughs> you're already living more than we ask of our employees if you're at BYU. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and off we went. And uh uh, what a, what an experience that was for a kid that uh, if I had to do it over today, knowing what I know today, it would have been a totally different experience. But I didn't know anything. I just, you know, 
I have nothing to base this on. I, I'd have been on my mission the year before, and now all of a sudden I was at, in New York, uh, back and forth from school, um, and working with the best. And, uh, that, 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 and they weren't going to let me fail. And I remember my first story was the Gulf War had broken out. We'd gone to Berkeley and visited with the students there because it was a contrast story to how it was when Vietnam broke out. And I remember I was back in New York, and Charlie Gibson and Joan London were the hosts back then. And Good Morning America had been number one for, for a long, long time. Now I think it's, I think they are back being number one. Today's show is number one for a long time in between. But, uh, and I remember Charlie Gibson anchored the, read the intro to the story. Now the story's on. And I'm sitting there, and I'm watching the story, and I know it's almost over. And I'm looking at Charlie because I'm on for a live Q&A. And I'm like, um... Uh, I said, so what are you going to ask me? And he goes, I'm not going to tell you. I'm like, all right. <laughs> so this, and so uh, the story ended, and he came out with three or four questions, and I gave my answers, and and then we were done and went to commercial, and it had gone good. And, and he said, he goes, you know why I didn't tell you what I was going to ask you? I said, why? He goes, because I wanted your opinion, not your memorized re- response, which is exactly what I've given him because I'm like, okay, I don't want to sound like an idiot mm-hmm. on national TV in my debut. Uh, I learned a valuable lesson from that. I don't tell people the questions I'm going to ask them. I'll give them the context. Um, like you gave me the context today. We're going to kind of talk about some stuff I've done, so I've been thinking about that. But I'll give them the context, but but it's it's unnatural to be interviewed, and if you tell them exactly what you're going to ask them, the thing, first thing we do is we stop thinking. Mm-hmm about how we really feel, and we start thinking, what can I say that makes me look smart? Um, and and, and that's, that I just still remember. I, at first I was kind of like, what do you mean? I'm not going to tell you. Well, okay, I'm, I'm just two cents here. I don't, I don't even belong. And then after I, I realized his motive, um, uh, that stuck with me for, for, my, whole, for my whole career. We had, a, we had a party at the top of some skyscraper um, uh, my second or third time back to New York, and they wanted to introduce me to the staff at this thing. It was a, a party to celebrate 15 years of number one for Good Morning America. And you're like, we did it! Yeah, I'm like, hey, <laughs> just took it one day at a time. And and uh, I'm literally the only kid. you know, And, and I'm still a kid. I'm like 22. Uh, and I remember going up to the top floor, and I remember looking out the building down onto New York, and it was all windows, and it was just spectacular. And there was champagne and music and chatter about everyone was talking about how great they are. And I, I remember <laughs> thinking to myself, going, "Hey, I know, I know this place. This is the tall and spacious building." <laughs> and then I go, and I'm on the top floor. What am I doing here? And how do I get out of here? And then they, I remember they had a toast, and uh, I, I didn't have any. I wasn't going to drink anything, and I, I, I it was very awkward for me because I didn't know what to do. Because they'd introduced me, and now they're going to have a toast, and um, I just felt really small and, and alone, and I kind of crowded in between three people to, to so that I didn't have to just be seen as a guy who wasn't going to toast and didn't know what to do, and 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 then this kid comes by, a waiter, uh, out of nowhere, and uh, and he comes by and he goes, "You the BYU kid?" And I go, "Yeah." And he goes, 
let me help you. And he just starts gathering food from these trays that are going by. You can eat this. You can't. That's got alcohol in it. You can't have that. And he, he compiles this plate of food for me. And, um, and then he goes, I'll be back in a minute. He leaves and comes back with a glass of milk. Classic. And so now I've got food. And, man, I was starving. But I didn't know. I just didn't know what to do. I, I'd never been in that setting. I didn't want to grab something that everyone knew uh, kids from BYU don't do or, or members of the church. And so he comes back and he presents me with this milk and I look at him and I go, I go, uh, are you, uh, are you Mormon? And, uh, he goes, he goes, no, but I love your football team. Yeah. I'm from New Jersey. I watch your football team every Saturday night. What year and is this? This was, um, this was 1990. So he knows Ty. So all that stuff. I mean, and we, and, and I, and I was like, man, BYU football is pretty popular. And it's pretty popular outside of the church and church members. But I, I was stunned by that. And then someone called me my attention. I looked over and I looked back and he was gone. And, uh, and I went looking for him to thank him and I couldn't find him. Um, and it was one of the three Nephites. I don't know who it was. <laughs> but let me tell you this. Um, I, I remember leaving that uh, to go back to my hotel. I remember leaving that night. And I remember being so grateful and I talk to kids in our ward all the time about this, uh, that, um, you know, I, w- I was in a spot where I was feeling alone. I was feeling, um, I was just trying to live the word of wisdom. And, uh, and somebody helped me. And then he disappeared. And, uh, and I left that night knowing that God knew where I was and he knew what I needed and he sent some help. And, uh, uh, you know, it could have been an angel. It could have been uh, a guy who snuck in and should have been there and just started <laughs> handing me food that I could eat. Or, but I do know that that uh, things are things are not happen by coincidence. And um, I felt that as I left that night, I felt grateful that I'm in Manhattan with how many million people, and uh, I could take a left turn here and have no idea how to get back. But uh, Heavenly Father will send people to help you, and they don't all have to be church things. They don't have to be revelations as to how to understand Isaiah. Sometimes it's just, you know what, that, that guy is trying to do the right thing, and he's in a bit of a pickle, and I'm going to send somebody to help him. And, uh, you know, and it was BYU football from a guy in New Jersey. Uh, That's just awesome. fascinating, fascinating stuff. That's awesome. Um, so you come back to BYU and you finish and then Terre Haute, then Vegas. And, and when did you start with BYU? Were you a student, like Blue and White Sports Network stuff? I was, um, when I got back from my mission prior to, uh, I got back from my mission in April of, 88. So we're going into that fall season. And you know, I was, my dad was head of the Cougar Club and, and, uh, we were doing things. BYU was broadcasting games. Um, and I sat there, we were broadcasting games to stake centers around the world. And, you know, you sit there and you go, what can I come up with that we haven't come up with yet? That's hard to do. And what could I possibly do to get involved with it? Because I was just barely in the program. Um, I'd gone to Rick, so I had to retake a few classes. Uh, oh, I didn't know after you went to mission. Rick's. Yeah, I went there for a year before my mission. Hey, that's great. Took humanities twice, there and here. <laughs> um, that's how I tell kids, if you're in it, just do it. It doesn't go away until you're done, and I had to do it twice. But uh, anyway, I got this idea. I said, well, if we're sending the games to stake centers, what do we do at halftime? Why don't we just 
sit around and the announcers talk about this and that. And I go, well, what if I went around to all the other sports on campus and put a weekly story together about what they were doing, what volleyball was doing, what soccer was doing, what baseball was doing, and our halftime feature was to the audience of BYU people, here's what else is going on with BYU sports. And, uh, and I remember talking to Michael Miner, who was working at BYU, at KBYU at the time. There's no BYU TV yet. And he said, all right. He goes, well, you know, it's going to cost – we need about 1000 bucks. You know, can't just – you know, no one, no one has a budget to just all of a sudden do something. I go, well, let me go talk to my dad. So I go over and talk to my dad, who was the director of the Cougar Club, and I said – I pitched him the idea, and I said, we'll call it the Cougar Club Halftime Report. We're already sending the game to all your people. Why don't we add this? He's like – Done. Okay. Here's a thousand bucks. And so we did it. And so then I started with that. And then uh, I would come on at halftime and introduce it. And I was so excited. My first one was BYU was playing at Navy. So this was 89, I think. Might have been the 89. My first one. And I'm at the Marriott Center. They're showing the game closed circuit at the Marriott Center. You're doing it live? No. Oh, you were recording. I taped this part. Yeah, yeah. But because they were all back at at Navy, Blaine and Jay and whoever, and the game is here at the Marriott Center being shown on the big screen, and there's thousands of people in there, and I'm like, not only do I get to make this my debut, I get to sit there and listen to see if people like it. So I was all nervous through the first half. We get to halftime. It's time for my story, and just as they're about to toss to it on the um, broadcast. At the Marriott Center, they turn up the lights, and the KSO radio guys get up and give prizes out the whole halftime. <laughs> so not only did they not see it, I didn't even see it. Oh. You can imagine how bombed I was at 21 or whatever. And uh, so anyway, that was my illustrious start at, uh, to BYU. And then it led to sidelines and halftimes, and it was like, well, why don't I introduce the halftime story instead of just have the, anch- the play-by-play guy throw to it? And then, and that morphed into other things with, with um, uh, Blue and White Network, and then Sports West Network, and then eventually BYU TV, and the same kind of avenue of people and 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 opportunities into play-by-play, and so all of that started with uh, coming up with an idea of sending an interview with the baseball coach to the stake centers at halftime during a football game. Because we thought that audience might like it. And then uh, then it just uh, developed. I, I'd go to my Good Morning America assignments. One time I was in New Jersey, and it was like 70 degrees. And I finished the story there, and they flew me to Colorado Springs for the BYU Air Force game on the Blue and White Network. Michael Miner and Russ Merrill picked me up from the airport that night. It was freezing cold and snowy. We went to Walmart, and I bought some Long John's. And that day we did BYU and Air Force. The following day, it was the coldest day of my life. My face turned blue. I couldn't talk. I was a sideline reporter. It was that cold. Wow. And then throw down to me, and I was just – it was the coldest – probably the coldest game of my life. And then from there, came home that night, late that night, got up the next morning, Todd Elder's quorum, and then back in class on Monday. And that was my – that was my senior year pretty much throughout. And But it was it was – it's what I do now, minus the chaos of being young and trying to uh, balance all of that. Uh, but yeah, so that it started with halftime reports, and and now we're getting ready for weekend games and basketball and 
uh, baseball and, and BYU TV. We're sitting in a building that didn't exist. And, uh, and we're our, in the hill. Our stuff goes all over the world. I, w- I was watching us in 2014 when I was covering the so- Sochi Olympics for KSL. And I'm watching BYU TV on my computer in Russia behind Vladimir Putin's iron steel curtain to keep us all safe. And I remember going to the branch that Sunday and looking around and everyone's speaking Russian and the only thing that wasn't Russian was the piano. Funny that music knows no, you know. And math. And math. And uh, and I remember looking around going, this, uh, you, you can't proselyte in this country but you can get BYU TV. And it just kind of expanded my vision of uh, uh, these folks can watch General Conference in their house just like I can in Provo. Um, and, and that's when I realized that BYU TV, I still think, and I'll always believe that it is one of the great modern miracles of the church, uh, modern, modern day miracles of the church, right there with the Book of Mormon because it, um, it takes President Nelson everywhere there's Wi-Fi. And, uh, and so I'm watching this and I'm thinking about that scripture that, you know, you take the gospel to the four corners of the earth. That does not mean knock on all the doors. And as a missionary, that's kind of what it means. You think that's what and it And you'll go, mean, wait yeah. a second, we're already there. On the and phones. My the mom computers. worked in China teaching English for a year, never missed a BYU broadcast football game, whatever, on her, on her computer. And like that, that's the world we're in. And so when we Say the world is our campus. It is, and BYU TV broadcasts to the world um, for sports. Is small driver of BYU TV, but the general mission of of this place is is so much bigger. And 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 so where you go, whoa, what am I going to hitch my wagon to? Something that's not going to go away. Yes, if you get the opportunity, and and so so I did. It's special, and I've compared this place to King Benjamin's Tower, right? The ability to get the message out, uh, which is awesome. When did play-by-play become a thing for you? Because you were a sideline guy. You were a halftime feature guy. When do you get the chance to do play-by-play? Well, my parents would tell you that I've done play-by-play my whole life on the trampoline and on my Nerf hoop, (laughs) and they're tired of the development, (laughs) and they're happy to see it come into something. You did some JV, you mentioned, but I mean like like BYU. My first, well, my first play-by-play at all was a UNLV-Utah State game uh, in Logan, a basketball game, and um, I always thought I could do it, Um, but until you have the opportunity, you know, and... And what was strange was we were expecting our Madison, our third, and the doctor said, yeah, you can go. We have plenty. You had several weeks or whatever. You can go to Logan. And oh so I go up there, and, and Sunday morning we're still at the Bluebird Hotel uh, waiting to get the bus to go to the airport. And, and they called, and they said, hey, this is going down right now. How fast can you get here? And I'm like, uh, well, i got to get on a bus with the team and bus to Salt Lake and get on a plane and fly home. That's as fast as home I can being get Vegas. there. Vegas, yeah. And so we, you know, everyone scurried about and this and that. But uh, when I was just about to land in McCarran is when Madison was born. And so I went straight to the hospital and there they all were. And and you're like, well, I, I, I wasn't here for that. Uh, but I had a doctor's note, so that kind of <laughs> took some of the sting away. And then at the same time, I also started that weekend this whole side career that I really didn't know where it was going to go, but it was going. Mm. 
And um, so those two, those two things kind of tied into each other. And then the following year, the following fall, UNLV was playing Tennessee in Knoxville. And um, we convinced UNLV to use BYU's blue-white sports network type to do that game back to Vegas. Uh, well, actually, we were trying to, and they were going to. Vegas decided. No, we UNLV said we got our own guys. We got our own people. So, re- remind me of that because that's an important point. So we go back there, and um, and so here's my first football game. There's 106,000 fans. Peyton Manning's a quarterback for the Volunteers. UNLV's got John Denton, the quarterback, young guy that's from Vegas, pretty promising. Then the next booth over is Jim Nance. And Terry Donahue, the former UCLA coach, they were doing a practice game because Donahue had just joined CBS. So they were just doing a mock game. I thought only us amateurs did mocks, but they were doing a mock game. So midway through the first quarter, we lose all the power in our booth. And, uh, and the producers switched over to radio because they had no communication with us and said, you guys need to come down here to the truck. So we go we're a mile away from upstairs. We go all the way down to the truck, and he goes, here's what's happened. We got nothing out of the booth. So we have one working microphone. It's behind the UNLV bench under the hedge, and we have a tiny monitor because that's what we were going to do for <laughs> post game, whatever. You guys need to run right out there right now. So we go trucking out. It's humid. We're in our jackets and ties, and uh, UNLV's getting killed, uh, and here we are. We got a microphone and we've got a monitor below this hedge that lines the lines the stadium. And so my color commentator, Steve Stallworth, and I are literally on our knees looking into this hedge, sharing a microphone. All our game charts are up in the booth because we had we had nothing. Oh no. And this little monitor. And we're calling the second half. This is how we're calling the second half. And what we didn't realize is that the 20,000 Tennessee fans sitting in that corner of the stadium could not see the microphone or the monitor, and all they could see is two guys in suits on their knees talking to a bush. It was so humiliating. And they'd say, I remember a Tennessee fan looking at me going, hey, you guys. I look up, he goes, the game's over there, pointing to behind us where so the game was actually going on. the second most embarrassing thing from a Tennessee crowd then. Oh, yeah. After a couple uh, weeks they ago. They trucked themselves a couple weeks ago. So I'm, I'm flying home, and, uh, and I wanted to do so good for Vegas because it was a big game for Vegas. Tennessee was number two in the country. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and you know what I wanted to do? I sat there, and I wanted to get home, and I wanted to call every single person in the city and explain to them we had technical difficulties. I realize you can't do that, but I wanted to because it was going to be such a great moment, and it wasn't. Uh, but but what that moment led to was UNLV came and said, we're not using these guys anymore. We're going to use your guys in Provo. And that's what brought Sports West into Las Vegas. Mm. And uh, and we've had a great relationship with Las Vegas You needed the technical ever since. difficulty it for all that worked. to happen, maybe? It, it, it worked. And then we started airing games on Channel 8, which had never happened before. And and I was just a giant part of all of it for a guy who had, hadn't called a football game in his life. Uh, and the one he did do was was he was talking to a bush for most of the evening. Um, hey, Moses did too, you know. Yeah, well, it worked out <laughs> mostly. Uh, and and so anyway, that started the relationship of Vegas with of UNLV with BYU. And Rebel fans will never really come to terms with that, but BYU and UNLV are are connected in so many ways. Yep. And now we were connected through broadcast technology 
Um, and uh, and then I've done play-by-play ever since. And you know what? I'm not the greatest play-by-play announcer. I get that. And um, there's always somebody who can do it better. But as Blaine and I, we're in our 31st year together doing this stuff. Incredible. Um, we, we, we said, you know, there are probably are better guys, but there won't be two guys that work harder, prepare more, and 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 do a pretty good job. There's always somebody that thinks they can do better, and, and you know what? That's great, but right now these are our jobs, and we're going to work hard to keep them because there are so few of them, and, uh, and, and we enjoy it that uh, you put up with some – criticism here and there and and you'll get a name wrong here and there and you're you're seeing one thing and your brain's telling you another like most of the day for everyone else only you've got a microphone a fraction of an inch from your mouth and sometimes things are going to come out differently than than you would hope um and you just keep going uh but it's so much fun to you prepare like you're playing the game so my brothers were big time athletes that prepared for games Blaine prepared for games when he was uh, at BYU and in high school. Um, but for me, you prepare both teams as if you're playing the game. And you're really playing the game. You're just playing a different part. There's the officials, the two teams, the fans, and the announcers. And you can either be a part of the game. You can take away from the game. You can be obnoxious. Um, you can ruin the game for somebody. Uh, and, and all that's in play the second you open your mouth. And we just tried to shoot down the middle because we want the other audience to stick around BYU TV and know that we exist and know that we have programs that they might want to watch. We're a driver in this place. We drive new audiences to BYU TV. So our job is to not agitate them. The radio, you can do that because you're preaching to your choir. Right. TV, um, you can do that, but that makes you obnoxious. I, when you're watching a game, can you tell sometimes when the announcer's pulling for the team – that you're not pulling for and immediately it ticks you off? And to where you go, you know what? I'm turning these guys off. And if we get somebody to turn us off, shame on us. Um, you know, we visit with all the coaches and we, we, we have their respect now in the West Coast Conference because we've done it year after year after year. And, and they know that we're going to represent them as we'd represent BYU. And the only Homerish thing that we might say is BYU TV when we go to breaks because we're BYU TV guys. And if it's a home game and um, uh, somebody makes a basket and the place goes nuts, that's the place going nuts. And we know this team better than the visiting team. And, and so if you're searching hard, you can, you can tell who we work for. But for the most part, we just want you to watch the game, enjoy it, and afterwards go, I'm not sure who those announcers were. They didn't annoy me enough to figure it out. Yeah. Uh, it was just fun. And now I know there's a BYU TV. I know where it is on my channel. And uh, if I ever need to go back, you know, you, you can't go back to where you've never been. And so if we can take you there through a sporting event, now you know you've got BYU TV in your house, and maybe you'll come back for something that's a little more important. So you put in, what, 20 years in Vegas? 20 years. 20 years. So originally you're a sports guy, then you become a kind of morning news guy, right? Meanwhile, you're the voice of the Rebels for – Ten years. A long time on the radio. During the black uh, hole of the Mountain West Conference when they took BYU's rights away, Blaine went to work for uh, some other outlets, NBC and whatnot, and I went uh, to became UNLV's play-by-play guy. Um, and then we'd do – BYU would still have control of their preseason non-conference games, so we'd be involved with that. Same thing with basketball. But right up when the Mountain started, they had yes. their games – 
on the mountain. When and, did you come in and do non-conference? Because I did a couple games with you when I was a student. I want to say it was seven or eight or something, right? Oh, yeah. We Prob- kind of brought you in for some non-con. Probably I, as early as, um, gosh, I, Blaine and I, I started as a sideline reporter in in 89. So, um, you know, um, when Jay passed is when I started uh, doing games for the most part. So yeah. somewhere in there. Yeah. yeah. You've been doing games forever. I grew up watching you and Blaine on Sports West. Which is doing... amazing because Blaine and I are so young still. Yeah, you, f- you feel young to me. And then, <laughs> uh, you know, and, I, and I'm not getting any younger either. But when, when I got a job here working with uh, when you came in a little more and working with Jay before he passed and all this is like, oh, my gosh, this is incredible. Like – I'm part of the broadcast team, and still to this day, like being able to sideline our football games, the one we do. Uh, when we're in the Big 12, who knows if we get to keep that. I, I let's doubt hope it, we but do. Let's hope we do. It's such a thrill for me because I've watched you guys for years and then producing Countdown for years with you guys was so fun. This is the first year I'm – or second year I'm not. It's been so fun to, to learn from you and Blaine because you guys are a part of the BYU sports story. What an experience we get to have with – the best version of BYU going into the Big 12. This is incredible. The, the great thing about the investment in the athletic department, there's also been the investment in the broadcast department. Oh, yes. And, um, you know, we were out of the Harris Fine Arts Center when we went independent. And I remember when you came in. in. Our building. Yeah. You said, BYU's going independent. we got to crank it up. And I was like, who is this guy? Yeah. I, I knew you from watching. But here? I was like, we must be big time for bringing in Dave. Let me tell you, uh, a couple of years before we went independent, Derek Marquis was down in Vegas, and he sent me a note. I knew of him, um, but we he sent me a note said he wanted to have breakfast with me, and I was doing the morning news. And the reason I'd gone to the morning news is so I could coach all my son's Little League games at night. Uh, and the grass is greener in the news division, but uh, I could have stayed in sports and lived happily ever after, but but I, I was, I'd been his coach for seven years, and I just I, it was either be at three games or be at 20. And so... So I made that switch, and then it allowed me to be free Friday to fly out to wherever I was going, whether it was UNLV or up here. And um, so anyway, Derek asked uh, me to breakfast, and we met at the top of the Marriott Renaissance, I think, not too far down from the Debbie Reynolds Hotel, which wasn't far from uh, Channel 8 in Vegas. And we sat there, and we honestly, this, this you just have to believe me on this one, but we honestly made a list on a napkin of what he thought need i what what i thought could happen uh to help legitimize BYU TV's new direction as a legitimate station and outlet for news and information for alumni and and viewers and because at the time it was student driven programs yes. were student driven yep. production was student driven which of those was great students. yep um yep. and so we we just he literally wrote these things down on a on a napkin and i said well number 1 is we have to get out of this conference. Now, that's me and him with no authority to do anything. But the reason being is we needed inventory. We can't be a BYU TV sports outlet with no sports. And the Mountain wouldn't let us air anything. Right. They'd rather have us have the volleyball team play at the field house in front of a sold-out crowd with no TV than to let us air at tape delay because it was the Mountain-owned. They were showing a Colorado State volleyball game. Made no sense, and, and it made no sense to the school president for sure, um, as to how we we have all this stuff and we can't even show it to our own people, even tape delayed. But that's how out of touch the mountain was at the time. Yeah. 
Um, and so number one was we have to get out of this conference because we need products. We need inventory. And then uh, also on the list was we need to replace the students with professionals. And, and when I say that, because I came to BYU and there was plenty of things to do that helped me. I was never on Channel 11 News, but there was enough around it to help me know that I can be a reporter and I can work basketball and football games and, and I could do the news. Uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't, let's take that away from the students because there were still all those things on campus. It was and still are. Yeah. It yeah. was, what do we want to be? Um, and, and I said, I said to Derek, I go, Derek, uh, such and such a great student at BYU can get up and say, the sky is falling or someone who is a legit professional can get on there and say, the sky is falling. And one is believable. And the other is, well, that's just a student. The sky can't really be falling even if it is there's just a there's just a difference that's why we go to college to learn some stuff so that we can go be professionals and and um i said so i hadn't volunteered myself i just said we just we need to do that because you're living in vegas i'm living in vegas i'm doing yeah. the morning show i'm up at we're on the air i'm up at 2 30 every morning we're on the air at four and um and so we made this list and uh and then all of a sudden everything on the list started to happen and he got, was the building in motion already? Was this why he wanted to? Do you remember what year? I this think was? this was uh, this was the year before we went independent. So what was that? Oh, so the building is in motion. It's under construction. Yeah. This 2010? is we're about to launch. You know, two, 2010. The independence announcement happened. So four eleven. So then this was in 2009, somewhere early okay. 2000. And we don't move into this broadcasting building we're sitting right. in until uh, I, I joke. Jim or Fredette's senior year. That's how we reckon it. <laughs> Seems right? appropriate. January 2011. So, so, and that's why he's meeting because we're. This is a new day for BYU TV. What yeah. are we going to be? Yeah. And um, and then through some talks, I said, uh, and there was a True Blue that a student I think was hosting. Well, Holly Rowe was or hosting Holly Rowe was hosting I, that. I was one of the reporters on that. Yeah. And um, and so they said, well, we we're gonna. That's our magazine thing, mm-hmm. and so. Um, uh, for whatever reason, there was a, a change there, and they said, well, why don't you do it? I go, well, I live in Vegas. <laughs> Minor so, detail here. So here's how this would happen. I said to Derek, I said, here's what have to happen. I'd have to do the morning show on Monday, then I have to fly up here, and I need a car, and I'd have to be down here by 4, um, tape the show, and then I need to fly back Monday night so that I could be on the air at 4 o'clock Tuesday morning. I said, if you can pull that off, I'm game. And he said, okay. And so we did. And I did that for five years. And you and I worked together on that show. I ended up producing the show. So I would literally, I would finish the morning news, (laughs) race to McCarran Airport, fly up here. The uh, young ladies at Hertz got caught on to what I was doing. So they always had a red car for me because they were Utes. Come on. Yeah. And then I'd drive down here. It was Deanie's homies. Would tape the show. And then I'd have dinner at my mom's. I'd go back to the airport and I'd fly home and get to get to Vegas by eleven thirty, uh, and be up at two thirty. Two hours of sleep to go back to work. And in five years, I never missed a Tuesday morning. That's unbelievable. In Vegas, of all the snow and the rain and the delays, and it was stunning how that all worked out. But um, but I felt obligated to be there Tuesday morning because they were letting me leave the market to go do something else. Yeah. Which, by the way, broadcast into Las Vegas. Because they got BYU TV on their cable systems, so I was literally going to work for someone else in the same market, out of the market, and then come back. And then later in the week, I was going to fly up here and do a ball game. 
So we did that for, for five years, and um, and we got better at it. We got better at it. We hired Michael Miner back from ESPN. We hired Russ Merrill back from, from sitting on the beach in Hawaii. And, um, <laughs> and these were the two that put our sports properties together. Yeah. Uh, Michael was a genius at organizing how we're going to broadcast, and Russ everything. is a genius at directing. Yep. And so those two, and we've got other great, talented people here too, but those two were the core, mm-hmm. and they were on the napkin. So we need to hire these guys back. You Be- said that in that moment. Yeah, because we oh, wow. we had to uh, – if you wanted to be here, you needed to do these things. And, um, and to Derek's credit, um, he made it happen. And, uh, and, and he launched us. Um, and I remember the day we announced independence, we were sitting in the basement of the Harris Fine Arts Center with Dave Brown from ESPN and President Worthen, right? Uh, President Worthen or was it yep. Bateman? President Worthen? Well, well, it was Vice President Worthen. Vice President Worthen, mm-hmm. President Samuelson. Samuelson mm-hmm. and, um, and, and Tom. And, uh, I don't know if Bronco was there or not. I can't remember. But, um, he he had been at the press conference at the yeah and yeah. so and we did a two hour show yeah and that no, was I remember. really I'm, the start of yeah. of what we were going to do and then we moved out of the basement and we have this big building and now we reach the world and um and I still remember that um, that conversation and the, and the notes on the napkin of everything that was on that napkin happened over the course of about three years and it didn't make us geniuses we we're just saying how do we go from here to there this is how we go from here to there. And uh, and then Blaine and I were back, and and we had had credibility before, and we'd been out in the business. And when I came back to True Blue, we still had a student staff, and yep. and working through that. But but um, the presentation was, we're not students. We want we want you to believe us. We're legit, yeah. And 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 then that morphed into BYU Sports Nation. We became a daily instead of a, a weekly, mm-hmm. and and the same thing. It's you and Spencer. You're not students talking about student things. Sometimes we look like students. Sometimes, to some people, yeah. But professionals <laughs> talking about what matters to yes. BYU fandom and BYU fans outside of campus aren't students, and the people who donate to BYU TV aren't students. Definitely. Not. And these are the people we had to bring back in so that they take the show serious, not the sports serious, so that they take the show serious. And um, and to Derek's credit, Michael Dunn's credit, and. Uh, um, and, and, and as we move forward with Jeff Simpson, who have been the three figureheads of BYU TV, um, we're doing amazing things. And it's hard to believe that we started in the basement of the Harris Fine Arts Center. Um, and, uh, and it's also hard to believe that, uh, that I flew up there for five years on that <laughs> schedule. It was crazy, man. And, and here's what's crazy is KSL hired me because of what they saw me doing at BYU TV much more than when I was anchoring the news in really? Vegas. Oh, because you, know, you can either do it or you can't yeah. there. But up here it was all improv and play-by-play and whatever. You can do that. You can do anything. And, uh, and I was in the airport to go home one night, and I got a, uh, a text from um, one of the people in charge of KSL. I didn't know their name, so I Googled them just to see, do mm-hmm. I even want to take this call? And then um, and I called... I had a splitting headache, so I ended up calling. I think the next day or whatever, and and um, uh, and then then they called and said hey, I was just driving home. They go, "Hey, uh, Bruce Lindsay is going to announce his retirement. Um, we wondered if you'd be interested in in replacing him on the evening news at KSL." And I'm thinking to myself, "Well, I've never even anchored the evening news. Number one, 
I don't know if they know that or not, but I'm not about to tell them. And two, that job, they've hired two guys, Dick Norris and Bruce Lindsay, in 55 years. So you just say yes, and then you go, what And what exactly was that again? <laughs> and uh, they said, well, w- we'd love to talk to you about it. Um, when can you come up? And I was coming up the next day because BYU was playing Pepperdine. So this is 2012. You know what? I'll go out of my way, and I'll be up there tomorrow. <laughs> I said, I, said well, I have a game tomorrow night at the Mary Center. And they said, uh, okay. Well, then, once you come up, and we'll meet with you, and then you get down to your game. And I go, okay. They go, but we're going to have you come through the back door, and we don't want you to be seen, and it'll just cause a buzz. And, oh, you're like And the I didn't want anyone in my Vegas thing. station to know I was at uh, another TV station. Because yeah, yeah. I was perfectly happy with them, even though my contract, for the first time in five contracts, I let that one run out, not knowing why. I just felt like I, I'd signed early every time my three-year contract had come up. This time, I just felt I just didn't, I shouldn't do that. So uh, not with any idea of this other stuff going on. Uh, so a couple months later is when I get contacted. And, and so anyway, I come up and I'm through the back door and up the secret elevator. To this day, I don't know where that secret elevator is that I was in. And I was in the building for nine years. But I uh, met with the head of uh, Bonneville and, um, uh, and, and a couple of others. And then, uh, and then they go, hey, uh, you're going to be late if you don't leave right now for your for your game. But what I hadn't done in I don't know how many years, 20, is driven from Salt Lake to Provo between 5 and 6.30 at night. Oh, boy. So I didn't even think of rush hour. Um, and I'm like, I got to go. So I run down, I get in my car, and I take off, and now I'm in traffic, and it's like uh, I'm in Lehigh. I'm in Lehigh, and it's about 25 after 6. We're oh. on at 7. Oh, wow. And here's the thing. I couldn't tell anyone why I was late or where I was. Mm-hmm. And so I, don't, I can't remember who the producer was. It might have been Michael or somebody. Maybe Caitlin Jenner. Maybe Caitlin. And I said, uh, I just text. I go, hey, uh, let's do our pre-production meeting. Can we just do it on the phone? And so, <laughs> so I'm in traffic. We're going over the few things for our broadcast. But Blaine's on one line. Caitlin's on the other. And, and, I, and they go, where are you? I go, I'll be there. I'm on my way. And um, – and so we finished that up. I said, we're going to have to do the open live. I won't be there to tape, but I'll be there. I don't know if I'm going to be there or not. I'm just saying I'm going to be there. <laughs> Where are you? You're just like, I'll be there. And so Blaine sensing something's up. He says he has a sixth sense about stuff. But um, I come screaming into the Marriott Center parking lot, and it is 5 to 7. And we're on at like 6.59 or whatever. And I, I, I might have hydroplaned into a spot. I got out. I ran into the arena, down the stairs because I didn't have time to go to the elevator. Down the stairs, over to the broadcast bench, and I sat down next to Blaine. Put my headset on. It was ten, nine, oh eight, man, and we started. Oh man, and and what was crazy is Blaine's looking at me like I'm crazy. Like where you been? You've been you haven't been late to a game and since the day we started. Uh, I said I'll tell you later, and um, and we did the game. And I'm processing in my head all that's transpired. I've, I've been to KSL. I'm talking about this job, which is like uh, pitching for the Yankees in our business. Uh, no one in Vegas knows. My general manager doesn't know. She just thinks I'm up here to call this game. I just about missed this game. And, uh, and I'm trying to process all that while the game's going on. And, uh, and then we did the game. And afterwards uh, – 
Uh, I'm talking to Blaine, and I told him what was going on. He goes, I knew it. I knew something like that was up. And I'm like, first of all, you didn't know that. <laughs> Secondly, that's what's going on. I remember I stayed at my brother's house uh, and talked to him about it. And then the next morning, I was back to Vegas. And I felt like I was kind of getting away with something, you know, because mm. you're like, I-, I hadn't done that before. I never tried to leave Vegas. I never called anybody to leave Vegas. And I wasn't going to. And they had called me. And and um, and then the, the cool thing about it is it all worked out. Um, we were at the Mountain West tur- or the West Coast Conference tournament. We were broadcasting games, and Blaine and I are walking out of the Orleans, going to our car, and KSL had called and wanted me to call him back. And I looked at Blaine. I looked at my phone. I said, Blaine, I'm going to push call right here, and it's either going to change my life or it's not. But this is what's about to happen. He's like, okay, call me when you're done. So I called and they'd offered me the job. And what was important through the process was I said, well, I, I really enjoy what I'm doing with BYU TV, so I want to keep doing that. And I don't know how you can be a news anchor at KSL at night and this. And they go, oh, we want you to do that. Why would we want somebody else to be that? So we'll accommodate your schedule. We'll actually pay you for days that you're not here while you're doing BYU games. Oh, that's incredible. So they were really good about that whole thing, and they were great about it for for nine years. Uh, And then my mom at the time was teaching English with BYU in China. And uh, her and my dad would have loved, they kind of missed my TV career because they lived here. And they'd see me when they'd come down and stuff and and all that. So I sent her a note. Uh, I knew she was sleeping because the time's all jacked. But I, I sent her a note and I said, Hey, uh, just want you to know, when you get back on July 15th, turn on Channel 5 at 6 o'clock, and I will see you there. And that's all I said. I sent it. And uh, and then I went home, went to bed, because I had to get up at 2.30 the next morning to go back to the news. But when I got up, I looked at my phone, and here's this hysterical, all capital letter response from my mom. Uh, so excited, wanting details, but just like, just she says, I was so excited. I baked a batch of brownies and ate them all by myself because there's no one else over here. <laughs> and and so then, so that's how we broke the news to them and the family. And and it was great because they were finally able to participate in my career each night uh, instead of just during a season or during a game and whatnot. And and uh, and that was fun. And then. Um, uh, and then we kind of launched, you know, life had changed. We, 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 what was interesting, too, is we got out of the mountain. What year did we get out of the mountain? Uh, 2011, when 2011. independence began. Yeah. So, so 2012, um, uh, I start my first year as our play-by-play guy. And um, I think we had a lot of games that year because we were independent and things were a little different. Yes, it seemed like it just seemed like we had more. We had a lot more. But yeah. uh, what we were embarking on this, and my dad, who was uh, the Cougar Club director from '75 to '98, just the year before, had passed away, and um, that next year I started in earnest at at, at BYU TV. Uh, and he would have loved to go on road trips and stuff with us and. And we just missed we just missed that window there. But but what uh, the miracle of it all is it it uh, it kept my mom and all our family engaged with everything that we knew growing up, which was this university and big events and and it just it was just the perfect timing for could have been better and all that other stuff. But under the circumstances, it was just the perfect timing to um, for our family. Uh, in a healing mode 
to have that, um, that we weren't just yesterday's news and now we don't know anybody. It was, I'm calling, I'm doing the game and we're doing this and just, you know, that might sound silly to somebody, but, but, uh, BYU has been such a big part of our family, um, as one, my dad's full-time job and provider kept us alive and fed us, but two, all our family vacations were bowl games because the university would pay the gas nice. and all this. We as kids were like, isn't it amazing? Every time we go on vacation, there's a bowl game. Crazy. Yeah. That's, San Diego. What a coincidence. Yeah. And we go to San Diego every year when it's cold. And and, uh, and my parents are just like, okay, I think we can, you know what? I think we, let's take all the kids. We'll go in the station wagon. We'll all stay here. We'll eat at McDonald's. You know what parents do, stress over how to pull this off. And we're back there living the dream going, what we it. do every year. My grandparents, one of the, you know, my mom's one of the 10 kids, station wagon, yeah. green, in the back, facing the wrong way. I love Holding that. Holding up signs that so, we're going to San Diego. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so... That's been great for me. Uh, when my dad was inducted into the Hall of Fame, I was able to give his speech, so to speak, That's and special. represent our group and see his picture in the Hall of Fame at the Cougar Room all the time. And and uh, it just keeps it alive for us. It's just it's kept his legacy. He has a Cougar Club legacy, but our dad legacy. It's just kept it alive. Like uh, you know, half the time I still expect to see him when I go in there. Mm. And I've never once seen him in there. He, clearly, he's not in there. But when I walk in, it's like. I used to walk in here when I was eight, nine, ten, uh, uh, and uh, so it's always been, it's always been home to us for all those personal reasons. And then we get to go do fun things, uh, like call games or do countdown to kickoffs or whatever. We don't always win. We've won a lot in the last two years, which has been awesome. But we had four and nine seasons. We still did the same number of shows. We never said let's go short tonight because we got beat. We just you weren't producing we just those post games. <laughs> <laughs> I, to, I wasn't producing them. We had to host them. Yeah. Hey, put on a smile. It's Mike, not the end of the world. Michael's going, hey, end it. No one's watching. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? Everyone watches. Yeah. Uh, we, we saw that in Vegas when we went down there for the Fan Fest. Oh, 8,000 people. amazing. Out in the middle of nowhere. And they just wanted, so many of them just wanted to be around us. And it's not because we're great. It's what we represent. Yep. We represent BYU TV, which represents their love of their institution and – they see us all the time, and so when they see us in person, it's hey, can I get a can I get a picture and and uh, and that's that's when you know, um, you know you can call the world's greatest game and go home and walk in the house and and your wife goes oh is that a game today you know it says it's like apparently that wasn't the most important I know thing. that feeling did you get some milk did you, did you get the milk on the way home you're like yeah. oh, I forgot that. <laughs> But when you uh, when you when you go face to face with them, even when we're inside Allegiant Stadium, uh, doing our pregame show with our broadcast desk and all that stuff, people just lined up and just stood around us, taking pictures and things because we were an extension of them. Yeah, BYU TV is yeah. part of BYU, and BYU is so big, especially football. And they they just that's that's when you go, yeah, this is a, this is this place is a connector of of. All that we want to have connected. That's the same word that comes to my mind, too, is connector. We're the connectors to the teams. Because what's just the opposite of that? Disconnected. And if you're disconnected and you're in Michigan, you're out. Or in New York or overseas, and you got no way to connect to what you love, you find different passions. You know, and I'll say, that's how, a, that's how someone can go to BYU and send all their kids to Wisconsin, Rocky Beagle. Um, you just... <laughs> You, you, if there's a nice. disconnect, you just have what you're around. Yeah, uh, and 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 
when the coaches say we have fans all over the world, they do because they're connected all over the world. I got a friend in Singapore. Uh, I'll tell you. So BYU beats Virginia. Crazy second half, awful first half. And uh, I got a buddy who works in Singapore, just moved over there. And so he gets the games the next day, the way it's all worked out. And so he texts me Sunday morning, and he goes, Hey, um, I just watched part of the first half. Don't tell me how the game ends. I got to go to church, and then I'm going to come back and watch the rest. And then I said, I go, I text back, I go, Oh, my gosh, that's all I'll say. Enjoy church. And so for two hours, I said, what is he talking about? What happened in this game? And uh, But you know what? He's got the BYU TV app. He can watch the game. Which you can watch the first three touchdowns that weren't on ESPN, exactly too, by right. the way. And he's connected. And he's connected on the other side of the world. And that's the power of of this place. And, and, and that's why we have jobs. Our job is to help with the process of connecting. And if we do a good job, we... We're back for another season, and uh, Blaine and I and you and Spencer, we've been here for a long time. There are a lot of familiar faces in this group because um, uh, we work hard. You know, We're pretty good at what we do, but we work harder than that, which allows us to make up for the rest. And, um, uh, and I love it when people say, it sounds like you guys are just having a good time. And, and and we Blaine and I have called a million games together, and it's like you and Blaine, you just look like you just sit there. You know when the other one's going to be done, and and you just this and that, and and I love that because we work so hard at the prep. The harder you work, the easier it looks. Mm-hmm. And and there are national announcers where you they're just fun to listen to because you know they did all the work, and now at a game they can just react, and they can react to this crazy catch this kid made, and they already know that that kid's. Uh, the first kid from his family to go to college and the first kid to get a scholarship and and overcame this, this, and this, and they can tell that story while we're watching that kid as opposed to, uh, that's a great catch from that kid, don't know a thing about him, so we'll just go on to the next thing. And then it's then you're stressed with what am I going to say to fill the time. Uh, and, and so as as you prepare and and do that all week, the fun part and the easiest part is when the red light comes on and they kick it. And now we're just watching with everybody else. We've just spent 20 hours this week with coaches' interviews and player interviews and notes and this and that so that it can all flow naturally. And uh, and now I can listen to Blaine saying something crazy as opposed to being so worried about what I'm going to say next that I'm not even listening to him. And heaven forbid I just repeat what he just said, mm-hmm. which is the death of all announcers. And sometimes we do it. And that's when we look at each other and go, you know what? We're not listening to each other. We're, we're so preoccupied with the 9,000 things going on. What really matters is your mic and my mic, and we're communicating about the game. And, and so those are little reminders. And if you listen closely, you can tell if an analyst is listening to the play-by-play guy or vice versa. Um, and when they are, they, they, you, you just play off each other and have a good time because the work has been done. I love that quote, you can't go back to where you've never been. And if you haven't studied and done the research on players and coaches and programs, when push comes to shove and you have an opportunity to say something, you don't have it. And you can't rely on, you know what, that reminds me of, oh, that guy just did this, that reminds me of this. And then, oh, yeah, Blaine, that reminds me of, remember what the coach said about this? And suddenly you've had a whole conversation about something we're all watching. You know number 12 has the ball. I don't need to tell you that. Radio guy has to, but I yes. don't. 
Um, but what my job is, is what, what can I tell you about number 12? Why should you care that number 12 has the ball or that he just scored his first touchdown? And, and when you've done all the prep work, it's amazing how much fun you can have. And then a four-hour game flies by. Um, one experience we had, one of my first games, BYU was playing New Mexico. It was on KSL, so I think it was probably a Sports West or Blue and White or whatever. And uh, I won't say his name, but uh, he was my new analyst for that game, just into the market. Uh, I, I prepped forever with and had all these game notes going into the game, most of which I knew I wasn't going to use. Uh, and, and he came in and sat down next to me, and he said, uh, he goes, hey, have you seen a roster? Oh boy. And I go, I go, yeah, I, I, get, I get a roster. I hand it to him, and he's like, I just want to get a couple of these names down. And I looked at him, and I thought, this is your game prep right here. And I'm looking at my stack over here, and I'm like, he doesn't know how to do it, number one. And he hadn't done it before. He just thought it was going to be easy. You just sit down and shout like Dick Vitale. But Dick Vitale does more homework than anybody knows. So when he shouts, he's spewing something that's actually interesting. And then the worst thing happened. Early in that game, a BYU player shattered the backboard at the pit. The backup backboard was across campus. Oh, my so they had to go get it. KSL, it's 8 o'clock at night. Everyone's left. We're on the air for a full hour to fill while they go find the new basket. There's oh no one to throw back to. Wow. I used every single note that I had prepared <laughs> just to keep conversation going. Yes. And over here to my right, the guy had nothing. And that taught me to never come into a game unprepared. And you don't know if you're going to need it. Uh, but you might need every single word. Uh, and, and afterwards, we had a visit of, hey, look, there's two ways to do this job. There's the way you did it tonight, and there's the way a basketball analyst does it. And he can't get there and be smart without study. And, and, uh, and that was my only – I think I might have had a couple more games with him, but that was the last time – that I was ever asked for a roster sheet just before tip-off <laughs> by my analyst. And it was the, the last time I ever regretted going, man, I got so much stuff here. I'm not going to need all this. I'm going to stay up till 2 in the morning putting these notes together. Do I really need that? And the answer is yes, and hope that you don't. But, you know, you just learn. That was, gosh, that was a long time ago. Steve Cleveland was the coach back then. Oh, wow. So, yeah. I think we wore the black Late uniforms. 90s, early yeah, it was oh, okay. And, uh, and, and I think I was also struck with French fries dipped in ketchup from the Lobo fans who knew we were the BYU announcers. <laughs> that was a full day for me. 98 or something? Something like that. That's crazy. Well, moral of the story is uh, keep the backup backboard in the venue. Yeah, I, I think they learned. <laughs> Everyone learned lessons. Everyone learned night. something. And yeah. I think BYU won that game. In the black, yes. I think I they won that game, and they may, may have gone to UTEP and beat them. 98, I want to say, or something. Something like that. Was that New Mexico had this super long streak that was I, busted in that game or something? Probably. But probably. the backboard and the streak were busted. I yeah, just remember sitting there going, who throws fries dipped in ketchup? I can see someone throwing a fry at somebody, yeah. but taking the time to dip it in the and ketchup? then throw it because, you know what, now I can get ketchup on his white shirt, and well, I'm just thinking – Huh. That took a lot of thought. That wasn't a gut reaction. That was, guys, let's dip these fries and let's throw them at those guys. <laughs> let's show them who the grown-ups you, are. You were the, the target. 
Gav, a million questions. We're not going to get to all of them, but let's finish with this. Being in Vegas and being nine years at KSL and going to all the Olympics and Mor- you went to Morocco and yeah. you're on a camel. And, like, who are, what are some of your favorite places you've been and kind of experiences you've had? Because Vegas, you were in the, the boxing game too. There were some massive fights. I was ringside the night that Mike Tyson bit off Evander Holyfield's ear. Oof. And I was ringside at a bunch of fights. I loved boxing. Having never watched an actual match till I got down to Vegas. And now every now and then I'll buy pay-per-view and my wife thinks I'm nuts. But uh, it's, it's so cool when it's a big fight and all that stuff. Um, I've been to Morocco. We were there for, for a story. Uh, I haven't been a lot of places. Russia, Morocco. Um, been to Final Four, Super Bowls, um, Indy 500. Yeah, you haven't been a lot of places. Oh, I mean, I agree. you know, I mean, like exotic places. <laughs> uh, and and um, uh, been to all these venues that BYU's played in. Yeah, being in a bazillion of those. But yeah. I'll tell you uh, a couple of things. The the most important things that I've learned over all these years is um, to be a good interviewer. The best skill is to be a good listener. Not to what have, was that? Not to have good questions. Yeah. Funny, not <laughs> not to have good. Not, I, I'm going to this interview with the best questions. Yeah. It's I'm going to go into this interview and be a good listener because everyone wants to be listened to, and if they know they're being listened to, they'll tell you anything, good, bad, indifferent. We had a uh, an investigative reporter in Vegas, George Knapp, who was the best, but he would get these death row interviews, and I said one day, I said, George, why do why would someone who's on death row want to sit down with you and do an interview? What are they? What are they getting out of it? And he said, uh, he said something I've never forgotten. He said, uh, "Well, they know they're not going to get out of jail. They know they're going to death. They're going to they're going to be put to death." He goes, "But everybody wants to be treated fairly, and they want to be listened to, and they know I'll be fair. They're not going to swing me to their side. I'm not in there to make their case, but I'll be fair, and I'll listen to them. And that's what they want. Even people who know they're about to be put to death." What is the last thing they want on earth? They want to be listened to. And and some of the greatest interviews that I've had a chance to be a part of became great interviews uh, by twists and turns that I didn't see coming because it wasn't my next question, but it was, what did you say? What? what? I mean, uh, two examples. Uh, President Eyring, I was interviewing him. He was the Grand Marshal for the Days of 47. So on Sunday nights, KSL got to sit down with that person. And I was sitting there going, um, okay, I'm gonna, it's like interviewing Peter, James, or John. You know, as you prepare for that, you're like, well, this isn't a regular thing. And it was Pioneer, and I didn't want to just do a regular Pioneer interview because that's not different from all the other Pioneer interviews. But all I could find was stuff about Pioneers. And so I realized, you know what? I'm going to do a Pioneer interview. So we go up to the conference center and got our play set with the backdrop backdrop of the the big thing they've got going on that night. It just looks spectacular. And here comes President Eyring. And, you know, he's a tall guy. He's like 6'7", I think, maybe. Small and, forward. Small forward. And uh, anyway, he comes over and he's getting his makeup on. They're just touching him up a little bit. I go over to make small talk. Um, and, uh, and I'm a little nervous because this man's important to me. It's not like... Other people you, that are, you know, you're interviewing because it's your job. This yeah. this man's a little different from ba- me. Basketball coach. Yeah, yeah. And um, so anyway, we start talking about. He said something about golf, and I asked him something. He goes, "Oh yeah." He goes, "You know what? I was just over watching Jordan Spieth's news conference after winning the British Open." This is him saying this, and I'm thinking to myself, going, "You were over at the administration building in your office watching ESPN." In my head, I'm thinking nice. that I'm like. 
that's outstanding. And we start, started talking about that. And, and then I asked him, I go, and I, I said, what, did you play basketball at East? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I love playing basketball. This, this, this. So my first thought was, well, did you ever dunk it? And he goes, one time, one time in a game. I go, do you still remember? And he goes, oh, you never forget that. And all of a sudden, I had my hook because I was trying to figure out how my 16-year-old son was going to watch this interview about pioneer heritage and, and, president, and, a, and a person that's 60 years older than him. And, uh, and I just, just listening to him, I just made a note and we went over to our interview and we started in on it and I started with, um, uh, him, him playing high school sports and playing at East high school and dunking a basketball, which made him a pioneer cause he was the first ever dunk in his family and then have him explain what that meant to him even after all these years. And you know what? We got into the pioneer stuff, and we just bridged that in there. But I had a hook that uh, I knew my 16-year-old would be fascinated. What? He, he was once young, played basketball like I like to play basketball, and he dunked it one time and still remembers. And, uh, and, it, and it meant a great deal to him, and he still knows what that feeling is. And, and then suddenly became a person and a, and a one-time kid. And we called East High School, got a picture of him in his East basketball jersey. Oh, very nice. And it just came together as, as something that I had no intention of doing because I didn't know about it. And just kind of as we're visiting, all of a sudden it's like, what? What did you say? What about that? What, you watched golf and then this and then that? And then all of a sudden I left going, I have something new and interesting about somebody I didn't know, yeah. but the only way we got there was by listening instead of, look, I'm just going to sit over here and memorize my 12 questions because I'm nervous about this guy. The other one, and tell me when uh, we've bored everyone to death when you're done with this. <laughs> the other one, uh, uh, Mickey Mantle came to Las Vegas just before he died, and he was doing a signing a, at a card show at the Tropicana, which was across the street from Channel A. And I heard that he was over there, and I grabbed a cameraman. I said, let's go over there, see if we can talk to him. Greatest New York Yankee in the eyes of many. And uh, so we go up to the, the guy, and there's a big, long line and all this stuff. And, and, um, and we're at the door, and we ask the guy in charge. We go, hey, can we uh, – I just want to go ask Mickey Mantle if he'll do an interview with us. A couple questions. And the guy goes, he doesn't do interviews. But you can go try. We're like – Thank you. We'll go try. We're here. And so, so my cameraman's coming up behind me, and I have no idea. I, I'm not even sure what I'm going to ask him because, uh, you know, I thought, well, can I ask him some baseball questions and whatever? Uh, but I sit down next to him, and my cameraman's to my right, and Mickey Mantle's to my left. And I said, uh, I said hey, uh, Mr. Mantle, I think I was 23 or whatever. I'm like, um, could we ask a couple questions while you sign? And uh, he said, sure. And he put down what he was doing, and he turned to me and gave me his full attention. And I'm like, we're doing this. In my head, I'm like, we're doing this. And I, the first thing I thought was, hey, I coach a Little League team. I, got, I coach a bunch of 10-year-olds on my Little League team. What advice do you have for me that I could give them? And I'm thinking hits, runs, and errors type stuff. And he stopped, and he looked, and his eyes got watery, and he said, tell them to not be like me. I'm like, and I just listened. He goes, uh, I destroyed my whole career with alcohol and drugs. And he'd been through a liver 
transplant that didn't work, needed another one. He goes, all my great accomplishments, you know, they don't mean anything to me because I, I gave up my health for, for that. So tell them to not do like me, which is the opposite of be like Mike. This is don't be like Mickey. And I was stunned at what he was saying, and I knew he meant it because it was, it was very emotional for him. And I expected I'm the king of New York, and let me tell you this, and swing hard and play and run every – and uh, I don't even know what I asked him after that. Maybe one or two questions, and we finished, and we went and put that on the news that night. Uh, and he passed away a short time after that. And um, in talking to older folks, uh, can, you, you interviewed Mickey Mantle, because to the older generation, he was it. Yeah. Um, to the younger generation, he's just an old guy. You know, to my T-ballers, they're like, they don't, they don't even they make don't yeah. but, uh, but the lesson of, um, and I felt so sad for him, which was a different kind of feeling I left. I felt, I felt so sad for this guy who I had total different emotions going into that interview of, this is one of the greatest baseball players ever. Um, and we get a chance to maybe ask him a question. Uh, and, and the listening part was key for me as I look back at that because he said it and then I, I didn't have a, I'm coming right back at you with another question. I just, I just let him, I just listened to him and then he just spilled the beans. And, uh, and that was a powerful lesson. I've interviewed Mike Tyson where I was afraid to ask the next question because we're about two <laughs> feet away and he's chewing gum and it's before a fight and he's just swinging left to right on his, uh, just just as anxious and nervous. And all I'm sitting there in my head is, I got two questions. These are what they're going to be. I don't even know what he's going to say. Yeah. But I need to get him to put two sentences together so I have a <laughs> sound bite for the news. What's your name, Dave I'm McMahon? Just, I'm just ready to fight. And that wasn't good enough. I got And I'm sitting there going, what can I ask him to get him to give me two sentences? Yes. Which is really hard because when you interview Don King, it's like, I'm not even going to get a question out and I'm going to get 15 minutes. Yes which was the first interview I ever did in Las Vegas, was the top of the Hilton with Don King while Mike Tyson was incarcerated <laughs> in Indiana. And all it was about was he was unfairly incarcerated and should be let out. Uh, I went from that interview to interview Andre Agassi, who had just landed after winning Wimbledon. That was my first day in Las Vegas. Wow. Um, but but I, I, I just think um, th- th- this job puts you in a position to meet interesting people None of them are better than anybody else. They might think they are, but they're not. And you're certainly not better than anybody else. Um, and it's just the rare opportunity for you to be able to do what you love and keep doing it and try to get, try to get better each time. But, but listening is, is the key to a uh, successful marriage. Listening is the key to uh, a happy home that communicates. Listening is the key to this job. It's, it's the key to being a good corporate boss. It's the key to being a good bagger over here at, at Day's Market. Um, and it's so often dismissed. Like, I know you don't care what I have to say, or I don't care what you have to say, and I want you to know it just by how I'm going to look at you or cut you off. And um, that's one of the great things. The Savior was the greatest listener that's ever lived. And if you read through the scriptures, you can – you can tell as he came across each situation, it wasn't just, I've got the answer for you before you ask me the question. It's, I'm just going to listen and think and respond and respond in a way that you know that you have my full attention. If you're the worst person draped in sin to go and sin no more, or if you're about the person to throw the rock or, uh, or, or somebody who can't see, um, or here, or is dead, and is going to be raised up, and the family's all distraught, and 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 uh, this 
the the ability to listen dumbed down way down to uh, Dave McCann level of just treat people with respect, listen to them, and they will tell you their stories. And then you can turn around and tell the world their stories, whether it's the sophomore tailback on Saturday, the power forward, or, uh, or the assistant coach whose son is struggling with cancer and is fighting for his life, and it has nothing to do with the outcome of the game we're in. You can share all that with the audience so that the audience sees it as not people in helmets, but, but uh, in, in our case, covering these guys and these men and women, they're 20, 21, stressed with career, marriage, who are they going to marry, what are they going to do. Uh, I'm behind in my biology class. Now i got to hit these two free throws. And if I don't, everyone's going to leave sad, and it's going to be my fault, and, and we just get to sit over there and kind of walk them through it. That's tough. It's hard what they do, um, but you know we just try to treat them with respect and 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 uh, and bring their stories to to our BYU audience on radio and TV and newspaper and and sometimes TV stations or wherever else we go. Sometimes at the supermarket, you know, where they say, "Jerem, you got to tell me about that game." Uh, I know when I go to church. If we lost, I know that. I can come out of the office just with enough time to get to the stand and avoid 30 questions. <laughs> if we win, it's the same thing. But I usually go out a little early if we win because everyone's yeah. like, can you believe last night, blah, 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 or what the heck was that quarterback? And it's, it's just the games we love, and it's part of our life and part of our culture. And, um, uh, and, and we're just lucky to be a little bit of it, a little part of it. Absolutely. Amen to all of that. Well, Dave, it's been fun to get to know you a little bit better. Thanks for uh, sharing many minutes together. Good luck saving this in editing. (laughs) (laughs) The radio show version is shorter than the podcast, so it's all good. (laughs) Okay, that'll do it for us. Listen to previous episodes on the BYU Radio app or where podcasts are found. Just search Deep Blue. For Dave McCann and Tanner Graff, producer Trent Reimschusel as well, I'm Jerem Jordan. You've just listened to Deep Blue on BYU Radio.